You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thank you, Grace. And you guys can remain standing while I pray, and then you can grab your seats. God in heaven, we come to you now as we look at your word more closely, and we ask that you today would come and speak to us, that you would dwell among us uh, as we seek to see you more clearly, as we seek to become more like you and live more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can grab your seat. Well, you might remember last week, for those of you who joined us, that we said that discipleship is being with Jesus to become like Jesus so that we can live like Jesus. And then we said that a disciple is a follower. And for some of you, that may have been a little bit like, felt a little demeaning, like, hey, I don't follow anybody. But, but I think that if we're honest, whether we're leaders in you know, our job, our workplace, or, uh, or leaders in any way, we're all, in some sense, followers as well. Uh, you might, might think through, who do you follow? You might follow people on social media. That's probably the most obvious one, right? We click that button, and now we're following. You might follow specifically social media influencers. You might follow sports teams or try and unfollow sports teams, as the case might be for some of us right now. Uh, you might follow music artists. You might follow businesses or business leaders. And, and following th- these things, not all of it's bad necessarily, we just have to kind of keep it all in check. We have to recognize how we are formed by the things that we follow and make sure that we keep those in their proper place, that we don't bend our knee to these people and these groups, uh, but, but rather we keep them in their proper place by not surrendering our lives to follow them, right? We, we don't want to be with the Seahawks, to become more like the Seahawks so that we can live like the Seahawks, for example, right? Uh, And that's actually a good example because that's one where I've had to kind of keep that in check. I grew up on football and then uh, totally abandoned it as I, you know, started playing music and stuff. It's like, I'm not hanging out with the jocks, you know, and so I didn't didn't do any of the music stuff anymore, or sorry, any of the, the sports stuff anymore. But then later, about 10 years ago or so, I started following football a little bit, and man, it's so easy to get just hyper-invested in that to the point where it's really forming you and shaping you and deforming you from being in the image of Jesus and into the image of the Seahawks. And so, uh, ultimately, as disciples of Jesus, our goal is to become like Him. And so, following Him isn't something that we can do in a half-hearted way. He's not going to just be cool with us you know, giving him half of our heart. He's either the Lord of your life or he's not. Jesus requires your absolute devotion. As we looked at last week, Jesus said that his disciples must deny themselves. They must take up their cross and follow him. And in that, Jesus is claiming that following him, that surrendering your life to do so, is actually worth it. He's claiming that he is worth it. And he made this claim. He says, if you keep your life, 
in the end, you will lose everything. But he said that if you give your life to him, in the end, you will gain everything. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard these words of Jesus, maybe even a lot, and you might have grown a little bit numb or immune to hearing how radical it is what he is saying. Just think about this. What would it be like if somebody else that you knew was saying these same words? Can you imagine what it would be like if anyone that we knew went around saying things like this? Just as an example, what would it be like if I said something to the effect of, you need to give up your life for me? And if you do, you're going to gain everything. What basis would I have to make that kind of a claim? I wouldn't. I would have no basis for it because I'm not worth your life. I'll just be honest. But Jesus is. So who is he that he can make these kinds of claims? Well, I want to think about that with you for a moment and, and to kind of get things started, we really have to start with the, just the fact that Jesus is he's not a myth. It's not just made-up stories. Jesus is not an idea or a belief system, even though Christianity is a faith and, and a religion and there's some belief system there. We have to remember following Jesus is following a person. And so who is this Jesus? Who is Jesus, the answer to that question really depends on who you ask. Who is Jesus? Let's think about a few things that the world might say about who Jesus is. First off, let's just look at some other world religions. For example, Islam, right? What does Islam say? They say that Jesus is only a prophet, that he's actually second in importance to Muhammad. So while they might think that Jesus is great... They definitely don't think that Jesus is God. How about Jehovah's Witnesses? They deny that Jesus is God in the flesh. They actually deny the Trinity. They say that Jesus is Michael the archangel who became a man and created everything. Okay? Jehovah's Witnesses. Mormonism says that Jesus is, get this, you might not know this, Jesus is the half-brother of Satan. Okay? And that he's not just the Son of God in, in the way that we think of it in Christianity. They think that Jesus is the Son of God in a very literal sense, that he was conceived through sexual relations between God the Father and Mary. Okay? That's what Mormons believe. Christian science, they deny that Jesus Christ is God or that he reflected the fullness of God or even that he died on the cross. How about the New Age movement? Well, that's about as... <laughs> diverse as anybody could imagine, but generally there's a big swath of people in the New Age movement who believe that Jesus was a man who kind of attained spiritual enlightenment, kind of like Buddha, and that he paves a way to you know, offer enlightenment to those who follow him to the point where you can actually become divine if you do it. Others might say all kinds of other things. You imagine what it would be like if you went up to someone at work or on the street. Who is Jesus? Who do you believe Jesus is? Which, by the way, is a great way to engage somebody on a conversation, a spiritual conversation. But some people, I bet most people around here would say something like, oh, he's a good teacher, right? Or, 
Or some people might be like, no, he's a crazy person. And, and this is a little bit like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, you know, Jesus, he, he, he's a very polarizing person. And you can't stay in that safe space of saying, oh, he's just a good teacher. The, the claims that Jesus made, the things that Jesus said, he's either a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. And that is the reality of what we have to face when we face the question of who is Jesus. What do you say? How do you answer that question. Jesus actually asked his disciples that question. He says, who do you say that I am? Well, I think that we need to look at what the Bible says to answer that question, and that's what we're going to do. We heard it read earlier, and we're going to dig a little bit more deeply into it now, into John chapter 1, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And I want to encourage you, if you have one of those workbooks, you can pop it open to the page that we're on and look at uh, the Scripture there. It's all laid out in the workbook. And I want to encourage you, as I'm reading, just circle or highlight or underline things that answer that question. Who is Jesus? What in this passage is telling you, or what is this passage telling you about who Jesus is? John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I want to pause there for just a second because John is doing something very interesting here. John's the author. He's borrowing a word from Greek philosophy. This is the word that we translate as word. And, it, and the Greek word is logos, and it, and it meant something to the effect of this was the wisdom by whom the universe exists. So Greek philosophers looked around and they said, man, the way that everything is ordered in creation, this is amazing how everything works so well together. There must be some kind of incredible wisdom that is underlying all of what we see here in front of us. And it was almost like a force, if you will, and you Star Wars nerds, you're probably picking up on that. Yeah, it's a lot like the way that the, the Star Wars movies talk about the Force. is similar to how the Greek philosophers thought about this word logos, the word. And so John here is taking their idea, but he's revising it. John is saying, yeah, who, what you thought was just this kind of impersonal wisdom and force behind everything that's created, that was actually God Himself. And so he goes on to explain this. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then jump ahead to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So who is Jesus? What is John telling us about who Jesus is? Well, first, it's, He's the Word, right? That's what we just talked about a second ago. He's the Word. But he's also the eternally existent creator of the universe. This was in verses 1 
2 and 3, that he's the creator of all things. And, and here in those verses, we see John's shorthand. He's not just saying that Jesus, the Word, was the creator of all things. He's saying that Jesus is God. That's what he's saying. And he also says that Jesus is the source of human life. That was in verse 4. He says that Jesus is the reason why we still have life and light in the world today, despite the fact that there is darkness all around. And darkness, you might have picked up, is John's shorthand for sin and evil and brokenness that we see in the world. And so if that were all that Jesus is, he would be worthy of following He would be worthy of our worship. That's our creator. That's our God. He's our sustainer. He's the one who gives us life. This is incredible. We got to worship him. But that's not where the story ends. What's so incredible is the shift that happens in verse 14. Did you notice that? It said that this eternally existent creator of the universe took on flesh. That means that he became human, and he dwelt among us. Now, this word that John, that's translated here as dwelt, is such a powerful word, and John is using it very intentionally here. This isn't just that Jesus, you know, walked around and he hung out with us. It is that, but it's so much more than that. This word John is using harkens back to the Old Testament, If you were to make a very literal translation, it would say that he tabernacled among us. You go, what in the world is a tabernacle? It's a tent. It was the place where God's people met with God. The tabernacle was where people met with God. And so John is saying that now Jesus is where people meet with God. It's incredible, incredible. This is where God meets with humanity. Also, this is saying that Jesus is fully God, yes, but he's also fully man. Jesus is the God-man come to be with us to save us and to show us what God is truly like, that, he, that God is full of grace And truth, as John said, and you can see it everywhere when you look at the ministry of Jesus. You can see it from his birth, from his teaching, from the way that he lived his life, from his death for our sins on the cross. You can see it in his resurrection and in his ascension back into heaven. And you can see it as the Bible promises us that Jesus will one day return to judge the living and the dead. He is full of grace and truth. Friends, look at how great Jesus is. Look at how powerful He is. I want to encourage you right now, just for a moment, just allow your heart to be steeped in who Jesus is, in His character, in His his person. And just see, this God-man is worthy of giving your life to follow. He is worthy of living for. He's worthy of our worship. And He's worthy of surrendering everything 
in our lives to follow. So let's actually look at that now in a story. Let's see how this actually played out when Jesus called his first disciples. And to set this up, I just want to show you a quick picture. Do we have that picture? Yeah. Okay, so check this picture out. That's a pretty good depiction of a real first century Galilean fishing boat. Okay, so that's actually very realistic. And in fact, uh, you can, so you can get a, a picture, a feel for what we're going to see in this story in a moment. Even the disciples there uh, look fairly realistic. We do have to point out the fact that this is a very unrealistic depiction of Jesus, though. <laughs> that Jesus is kind of, you know, he was a Middle Eastern, probably pretty tan-skinned dude. Uh, and here he, he looks like he's been raised in the Pacific Northwest with pale skin and, and blonde hair. And a pretty, he's pretty clean cut. His clothes are white as can be. Like all that stuff is extremely unrealistic. At this point in his ministry, Jesus was probably homeless. He was probably not super clean. And though he probably had a beard, it most likely was not well trimmed. But uh, let's set all that stuff aside. Okay. <laughs> This is the Sea of Galilee, which is really a giant lake. And we're going to read about what took place there here in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Simon Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So let's just pause there in the story for a second. Jesus, right prior to all of this happening, he's just recently inaugurated his kingdom. He's just launched his earthly ministry, and he did this by going to a synagogue and announcing to everyone that he was the Messiah. That he was the Savior that they had all been longing for, waiting for as Israel had been looking toward for thousands of years. And as you might imagine, the response to that wasn't real great. (laughs) In fact, everyone freaked out. They kicked him out and they tried to throw him off of a cliff. Okay, so not off to a real good start here, Jesus, right? But then after that event took place... Jesus went about throughout the region and proved that what he had just claimed was actually true. He went around healing people of all kinds of diseases. He he was preaching with power. He's working all these kinds of miracles, so much so that people began to kind of herd around him. These crowds started forming, and as verse 1 said, they came to hear the Word of God. And it wasn't like I'm sharing the Word of God with you right now. It, it, It probably included that of just, you know, reading God's Word and so forth. But Jesus was actually speaking the very words of God. That's what He was doing. And so everybody wanted to hear about it. So Jesus decides to hop into a boat that's sitting there. Now, presumably, Jesus already knew these guys who own these boats. I mean, this is a small, small town. They they might have even grown up together. They might have had some sort of background and relationship. These guys certainly had heard about all the things that Jesus was doing. And so Jesus asked them, "Will will you go out from land a little ways? Because at that point in time, there's no 
uh, sound systems, right? Jesus created kind of a makeshift PA with the amphitheater that the, the mountain next to them sort of created. And so he, you can even go to Israel to this day, go to where this probably took place, and you can hear it with your own ears. You can hear how uh, the sound travels so well there, and that's exactly what he did. And so he taught, and in verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. So he's like, hey, let's go fishing, right? And Simon, that's Simon Peter, answered, uh, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. So he's already calling Jesus Master here. But he's saying, uh, I think we already tried this. But he says, at your word, I will let down the nets. This is such a, as a side note, this is such an amazing picture of faith. So often, this is what our faith is like. It's like, yeah, Jesus, I already tried that, but I'm going to do whatever you say anyway. And that's what happens here. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. That's how many fish were there. They signaled to their partners on the, in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. That's a lot of fish. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. They were all business partners. They had this fishing business. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Or as uh, Matthew's gospel says, you will be fishers of men. And when they had brought their boats to land... They left everything and followed him. And so Peter, Simon Peter here, he catches a glimpse of Jesus as Lord. He sees it. This is the same Jesus that we just saw in John chapter 1. This incredible creator and sustainer of the universe in human form, in, in the flesh. Simon Peter, he saw how Jesus taught and, and this incredible gift of sharing God's word with power and full of grace and truth. He saw how Jesus has full authority over creation because he's the creator and sustainer of all things. And as Peter stands in Jesus' presence, he realizes the disparity between them. He realizes he's a sinful man. Perhaps he saw that before, but now his sinfulness has become all the more clear, all the more acute, and, and he sees how far away he is from this Jesus who is holy, who is God in the flesh. And so what does he do? How does he respond initially? He begs Jesus to leave him, which sounds kind of crazy to us first, but this is really a natural response. This is how all of us would, response, would respond 
perhaps if we were right now standing before the throne of God in heaven, standing in the presence of Almighty and Holy God. And yet that's not the only response that we might have to God's holiness. It's not the only way that God's holiness works. You see, the holiness of God, it does repel or expel evil. It does do that. But for those of us who are willing, it actually does that in you. It actually casts that evil out of the human heart. It actually it removes the stain of sin and the filthiness of sin and the sinfulness of sin and allows us to draw near to God. See, God's holiness, it doesn't leave us unchanged. Either we want to get away from it or God will get the evil out of our own hearts so that we can come close to Him. So we might resist it and in in the end that would destroy us. But we may also find ourselves so attracted to it that we find God's holiness actually changing us and transforming us. And so it is with Jesus. At the end of the story, what does Jesus say back to Peter? What is, how does he respond to him? He turns to Peter and he says, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be cast away from my presence. No. Come. Come and follow me. Come surrender to me. And you will become like me. You'll become fisher, a fisher of people just like I am. And friends, our response should be the same as Peter's and the other disciples with him. Our response should be awe and wonder at this Jesus, which is definitely going to lead us to confessing our sin before him because we'll see that same disparity. But it should also be leaving everything so that we can follow Him, surrendering everything so that we can follow Him. Have you surrendered everything to Jesus? Now, depending on where you're at in the journey of faith or in even exploring who Jesus is, you might answer that question differently. You know, maybe your friend dragged you here today and you're not really sure about Jesus. You're, you're kind of in a phase of just asking questions. That's great. That is a good, good thing. And in fact, I hope and we hope that we can be a safe place to have a really open and honest dialogue about what it is that we believe and who Jesus is and press in on those real issues. I would love to talk with you if that's you. Let's talk. But maybe some of you are here and you've been doing that a really, really long time. And I just want to press a little bit on that and say, what's holding you back? What's what's it going to take for you to start following Jesus? What's, What's the resistance? For others who are here, maybe you prayed a prayer once, right? You prayed a prayer once, and that had absolutely no effect on how you chose to live your life after that moment. A lot of us 
you know, go to youth camps, for example, and we have that moment where we're there and someone says, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to see a raise of hands. We were talking about this as a staff this week. And I just got to say, that can be a place where people make a real commitment to Jesus. That's a good thing. But that is not a great way to set up what it means to follow Jesus. <laughs> Following Jesus is a very wholehearted and public thing that we do. It's a public declaration. And so if that's you, friend, today, maybe, maybe today could be the day that you actually act on that commitment, that profession of faith that you made. Maybe today, friend, is the day that you actually surrender your whole life to Jesus. For others, perhaps you've been following Jesus for a long time and you've had a lot of ups and downs, striving and falling, stumbling. Uh, This today is a moment to thank Him. Today is a day to, to thank Him for saving you, for giving you new life for bringing you on this journey of faith, for allowing you to know Him and to be in fellowship with Him and to become more like Him. Today is a day for that. But it's also a good time to reflect on any areas of your life where you're holding back. Are there any, area, any areas of your life that you have not yet surrendered to Jesus? And some of you might be thinking, well, I don't know, I kind of go through these different areas of my life, I think about my finances, about my work, about my relationships, I don't know that I need to surrender those things. And I just got to be clear here, I don't think you should surrender, for example, your marriage or your family to Jesus in the sense of leaving it so that you can follow Him, okay? That's not what I'm trying to get at. Maybe submit is a better word for you, okay? Have you submitted it to Jesus? Have you brought all of those things to Jesus and said, uh, you can have your way in this part of my life and I will do anything that you want me to do? Allow this area of my life to be conformed to your will and to your ways? That is what we're talking about when we talk about leaving everything or surrendering everything to follow Jesus. Some of you guys might know Shan. He's one of our volunteer uh, unpaid elders here at the church. And he's a big dude. Amen? Anybody know Shan? He's a big dude. He's big in every single way. And by the way, I did get his permission to share this. So if you're like, okay, what is going on here? He encouraged me to share it, actually. He was very happy to do it. And Shan's just a big dude. He's got a big personality. He's got a big voice. I think he's like 6'5 or something. He's just big. And that includes his weight. Even for his size, this has been a problem pretty much his whole life. He grew up in a family where unhealthy, and I would even say sinful eating habits were just a part of the water that he swam in. It was completely normal. He told me stories about like how they didn't eat any vegetables that weren't from a can, for example, and how cake is always on the counter in in the household. And and this is so so extreme. This, This was such a big part of his life that he never even thought about it. He was actually ignorant that there could be another way to relate to food. He was ignorant that, there, that this way that he was raised is not faithful. 
in stewarding our bodies as a Christian. And in college, he was a wrestler, which kept him super active, right? But once he graduated, he vowed that he would never exercise again. And he actually kept that vow. He, I think, was probably proud of it for a long time. But then he got married, which we all know is sort of a, is a mile marker in our life, right? It's always that place where you can kind of look back and go, okay, that was, a, that was a big turning point in my life. This thing or that thing happened since then. You can kind of remember other events that happened after that point. And, and he says, looking back, he realizes that he gained 10 pounds a year for the first 15 years of their marriage. That adds up real fast. 150 pounds in 15 years. And finally, a few years ago, he recognized his relationship with food was a significant problem. And as an act of repentance, he tried to learn why this was an issue, why he saw things this way. This is when he started meeting with counselors and talking with them about, you know, how can I view food differently and how did my family form me in this way and he, how can I surrender this to Jesus? And he started thinking more about what could change and, and he asked the Lord, he prayed fervently, Lord, change my heart. And, and while he wasn't overtly rebelling in that, he describes his attitude during that time as being this sort of classic Christian, I want him to change my heart, I don't want to have to change my behavior. Amen? I think we're all a little familiar with that at different times. And so as you can imagine, not a ton changed. He continued to have these unhealthy and sinful habits with food, but again, he was just so used to it that that he was in some sense blind to what was going on in this area of his life until this last summer. And he told me this story. He was, at the time, walking with three other people. He, he loves discipling people. He's walking with these other people who weren't surrendering a certain area of their life to the Lord. And he was, he was really sad about that. He was concerned for them. And he couldn't quite figure it out. It was like, what was in the way? And he was kind of praying about this. And he realized that in reality, these people were holding on to their sin But the way they saw it, they saw their sin as holding on to them, right? And again, amen, we all have experienced that at some point or another, but he was getting really frustrated as he's praying and he's thinking about this. He's like, man, what is is going on? And as he was praying for them, the Holy Spirit spoke to him, and he realized that while he felt bad about the way that he sinned with food... Even since that time where he began to recognize that sinfulness, he continued to reserve the right to, as he says, eat what he wanted when he wanted. And he thought, as he's praying and the Spirit brought this up, he's like, no, 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 Lord, that that area is off limits, thank you. Nope, just not going to touch it, not going to look at that. And of course, he realized almost immediately how could, how could I be a Christian 
and respond to the Holy Spirit that way? How could I have this one area of my life where I'm living as though Jesus can't have access to it? He can't touch it. He hadn't surrendered this area to the Lord. And as this became clear, he thought to himself, of course I want to surrender that to God. He immediately began learning more about healthy food habits and how to form those in his life and and began changing those habits and how he eats and when he eats. And of course he hasn't completely mastered this. This has been a couple of months, okay? But even now when he stumbles, he realizes that he's stumbling because it's been a while since he's had that conversation with the Lord and he's started to think that this thing is his again and, and it's not something that belongs to Jesus. And so this story, you guys, it's kind of a long story, but it's just one example of what it might look like for us to surrender everything to Jesus. Shan responded to Jesus call in his life as the most important thing in his life. He knew that he had to surrender everything. Nothing could be off limits. Nothing. And so the reason why I'm telling you this story is because I just think it's so common. All of us at one point or another will experience this, and all of us have to constantly be returning to this signpost. This, this follow signpost. And remember, Jesus is life. So we find new life in Him. And we daily, daily surrender our lives to follow Him. Surrender is this ongoing activity in this journey of following Jesus. Jesus' first disciples learned this. They learned it as they watched Jesus live his life. They had no idea when they were at those fishing boats and with the fishing nets. They had no idea what it would mean that they were going to watch him deny himself and take up his cross on their behalf and on behalf of the sins of the whole world. And they had no idea that that decision to follow him and to leave everything would eventually lead to them denying themselves and dying in his name. Have you left everything to follow Him? Will you surrender your life daily to follow Him? It is absolutely worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for teaching us about your son and helping us to see how you sent him and how Jesus, how your glory and eternity came through even in your humanity. And Jesus, we just confess that you are worth giving up everything to follow. Sometimes our hearts are led astray by even things that are so subversive that we don't recognize them. Things that are in our life that have just become a part of who we think that we are. And God, I pray that right now you would expose those things, those ways that we've held on to areas of our life that we just 
We don't want you to touch it and help us to surrender. Even in every moment of every day, we pray this for your glory, Jesus, and in your name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.